0: Welcome to The Book Pod with Corrie Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boon Oorong Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and
1: emerging. Welcome everyone to The Book Pod. It's lovely to have your company. And today we travel to the art world, to a world of creativity and inspiration of passion and pain, of drugs, obsession, and love. A world of magnificent colors, extraordinary travel experiences, and brilliant paintings. My guest today is Ashley Wilson, writer, former journalist, and the biographer of Australian artist, Brett Whiteley. Brett Whiteley remains one of our country's most outstanding painters, and his death in 1992 at the age of 53 was a tragedy because of all of the potential that we lost and because Brett died tragically of a drug overdose. Ashley's 2016 best selling book, Brett Whiteley Art, Life and the Other Thing, is a must have for people who love Australian art history. While researching the book, Ashley came into the orbit of Wendy Whiteley, Brett's ex wife and his longtime muse. Although Wendy and Brett were estranged at the time of his death, Wendy found herself the keeper of the Whiteley flame following the tragic death of their only daughter, Ark in 2001. Wendy is also known and admired because of the extraordinary community garden she has created on Sydney's North Shore. It is here at Lavender Bay overlooking the secret garden from her beautiful light-filled home, Wendy Whiteley agreed during one of Sydney's lockdowns to tell her life story to Ashley Wilson. The result is Ashley's new book, a Year with Wendy Whiteley, now in bookshops and published by Text Publishing. Ashley, hello and welcome to the Book Pod. It's great to see you again.
0: Thanks, Corey. This is great to be here.
1: Ashley, this is such a beautiful book and at its heart, I feel there's a very strong friendship between yourself and Wendy Whiteley. We can talk about that in the moment, whether my interpretation of that is correct. But can we go back a few years to when you were working on that 2016 bio of brett did you imagine that wendy might one day become the subject of another book that she would agree to this idea and did you feel that there was an interesting there there was enough interesting material in her life as well as her former husband's to form the basis of the book that you've produced now yeah back in back
0: when i was doing the the book about brett of course i had a singular focus which was which was him, not her, obviously. But it was very clear, of course, throughout that process, and while looking through those stories and memories, that um, there was one person whose whose presence was was larger than most, and at times larger than Brett's. Um, but it was by its nature a, a, a focus on Brett and not Wendy, and she was, while while always a part of that narrative, this that was Brett's story and not her story, and it would be. Wrong, of course, to think that it was uh, telling Brett's story is telling hers because they're, they're different people and they've got different sort of um, trajectories in life. And so it was, she, she wasn't, it was funny. During that process, I, I did find myself saying to to a number of people I spoke to about Brett's life that you should write your own book um, because you can only use a, a, a small amount of material in a biography like that. And a handful of people actually did go ahead and, 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 and put pen to paper as it were. And, um, and just a couple of days ago, I got contacted from one of Brett's old school friends who'd just been doing that himself. But obviously, Wendy White was a different prospect. And I knew just as people had been circling Brett's life for years, as, uh, from a biographical point of view, I knew that people had been doing it for Wendy as well. And for various reasons, it never really pulled it off. And one of those reasons was, a, I guess, a lack of enthusiasm on her part. Um, would people really be wanting to to read about this? She was wondering, and she didn't really think there was a lot there to, um, to sustain a book. And one thing is that she certainly didn't want to write a book herself. I don't, we might get to this, but she's she's a she she doesn't like the idea of mediocrity when it comes to creativity. I guess. And she's, she can write, but she's not a writer and she didn't want to do a half-assed job, basically. Um, so that's the reason there isn't an autobiography under the Wendy Wiley name.
1: It struck me as I'm reading that it's an incredibly, it must have been an incredibly difficult slash interesting journey for her to be ploughing through these memories about her former husband. If it, If she was widowed if their marriage had been as full and as rich as it was in the early years at the time of Brett's death, it would have been a whole different story. But the fact that they'd been separated for so long that he'd repartnered at the time of his death, it's, an, it's just an incredible relationship that continues after death but actually continued after divorce. And one of the most powerful paragraphs of the book, I think, is actually on the, the inside cover that you've used it there too, and you say, we sit at the table opposite each other, a tape recorder and a microphone between us. And I begin by saying that I don't want to start with Brett. That's a good idea. Wendy looks at me and smiles. I didn't start with Brett. Yeah.
0: Well, on the uh, on the idea of their their relationship enduring over the years, it's true that at the very end of of, of Brett's life, they had split up and. There was a, a sense of animosity between them that you couldn't really miss, and a lot of that was sort of tangled up in in addiction and various other arguments and, and settlements and things like that. But they were they were a, kind of a creative partnership for three decades or so. And as she mentions herself, there was this, there was a certain kind of mellowing, I, I guess, uh, as the years went past, uh, as the sort Of the daily disputes faded away, and the um, the, and the you know, a clearer picture of what really mattered remained. A, a clearer picture re- remained as, as the, the smoke cleared, I guess. And 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 she could see with some clarity what the the contours of that life. But going back to your other point, though, that it's true, though, that she the the, the Wendy Whiteley story. Doesn't start or end with Brett Whiteley, and and you mentioned that word muse earlier on, and I don't I don't really love that word because it seems like quite a passive one. And what,
1: what word would you use?
0: What word would I use? Maybe collaborator? I don't know. But muse itself is a it seems limiting. It seems like you're there at the service of of the the great artist to to help them achieve greatness, and I I, I think that's that's not really her place.
1: Oh, it's well, interesting because I have a I have a different interpretation of muse. Maybe it's is it because I'm a woman, you're a man? I don't know. That's interesting. I often think that the muse has the power. The muse is the one that the artist, assuming it's a male artist, it could be a female artist, but the muse is the one who who the artist is wanting to represent and wanting to be with and wanting to capture.
0: But isn't there a sense of the the muse sitting in the corner? looking beautiful and alluring and mysterious and waiting to just to, to to send over that spark of inspiration to the other corner. I, Anna Schwartz, Wendy's old friend makes makes the point in the book, and it's a reasonably provocative one, I think, but she says that she considers Wendy's involvement in Brett's life to be so fundamental that it's that she thinks it's as much her work as his. And to be clear, Wendy doesn't say that. that's that's her friend saying that. But
1: I think it's interesting coming from a, a commercial art dealer of many years and a huge reputation as Anna Schwartz yeah. to say that, doesn't it?
0: Well, I think um, it's just that thing about news just, just being a, a, as I said, a, a passive, almost distant role. And I think that she has a a, a very fundamental part in his his creative life. Uh, but how you shape that and how you describe it, it's it's a um, that's another thing, I guess. But I, I, one of the one of the challenges in in a project like like this, that I, in a book like this, is to to know what to do with the presence of Brett in that little passage you you read out, because I I didn't want to make this a book about about Brett, basically. I didn't want to bounce it off him constantly. I didn't want to have it subservient to his reputation or his legend or his myth. But at the same time, as she says. Quite often, that they were together for so many years that you can't tell the Wendy Whiteley story without um, bringing him into it. So you need to, to strike that balance in a way, and hopefully I've done that. But one one important point to make, of course, is that before she was Wendy Whiteley, she was um, Wendy Julius, and Wendy Julius. Then that that surname brings its um, a whole lot of baggage in in itself. Um, the Julius name being. Um, generations of famous, um, distinguished engineering pioneers um, over in WA and then in Sydney. That the grandfather was the the founder of the CSIRO and uh, you know, all, all these sort of distinguishing elements. That, that as she said, there was no um, there's no free lunch with that name either. And she probably wouldn't have picked Julius or Whiteley or even Wendy really. But uh, I, I guess that's one of the and I'm and I feel like I'm drifting a little here, but. That was one of the appealing factors about finding herself in London in the late 80s during recovery when she was just Wendy. Um, No-one knew any of this stuff. She wasn't married to anyone notable. She was just herself and she would um, she, she could present herself to the world on her own terms.
1: I think you might be too young to have met Brett Whiteley, but I do have to ask the question, did you ever meet him? And, and if not, when you were preparing the biography of a few years ago, how did you get a sense of the man?
0: I was in year nine when he died and I didn't meet him, but I'm from Sydney. So I I always felt like I existed in his world to some extent, um, his visual world. How I got a sense of him. So, well, I didn't want to give the impression that I knew him because I didn't. But so all I could do was to get my hands on everything ever written about him, which I think I did, and to talk to as many people as possible who knew him from childhood onwards. Uh, from around the world, from celebrity rockers through to more, uh, I guess, colourful drug dealers around town. Like there was quite a range of people, and together, just trying to get that that idea of of driving a, um, a bus through that all that sort of tangle of of, of stories and myth. And um, not not to mix metaphors here, but one of the one one of my challenges that I that I set myself was that the Brett Whiteley's story has been had been mythologized for so many years by himself too. And there'd been so many, so many claims and and, and ventures written about him. And I thought it was it was time to sort of to clear away some of that smoke and just to kind of unembellish his story and to tell it as straight as possible. And that's what I think I did, which um is very different to the approach to Wendy.
1: It's interesting when you talk about the myth and the man and and what was real and what was not. And you and I, of course, were colleagues at the Australian newspaper 15 or so years ago when we were writing and publishing stories on the alarming number of Brett Whiteley fakes that were starting to creep into the marketplace, the art market. And it did prompt a lot of discussion with art experts about his style, about his Paintbrush strokes, the the minute details that you have to go into when when somebody is is uh, confirming an artwork's authenticity. So he, even though I'm in Melbourne, always had a very strong sense of Brett Whiteley, and he is a truly great Australian painter who captures our landscapes and our seascapes like no other. I wondered how did this biography of Wendy come about, Ashley? You you paint a picture beautifully in the in the book, but. Can you share it with us and maybe at some point in your discussion here you might like to read from that early part of the book?
0: Firstly, I, I don't call this a biography. If I'm forced to call it anything, I'll, I'll call it a conversational portrait because that's what it is. It's Wendy and I sitting at a kitchen table talking about her life. The term biography, I, to me at least, is a, is a kind of a comprehensive account, more of an exhaustive life-to-death narrative that takes in it's, as much detail and, as well. I,
1: and I agree with you and there's an objectivity too that must be sitting on top of the biography project yeah yeah
0: and I mean there, there are obviously various approaches with biography these days whether you um approach it like a, in the way that David Ma calls it the quest biography is and describing your search for 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 details or whether you take a, a more classical approach which, which I did with Brett which was just to to stand back and present the information as it comes. I'm coming around to the view though, that biographies are getting bigger and bigger these days. The Picasso one, the multi-volume one is in the the millions of words written in that one. I I, I suspect, and I I could be wrong here, but I suspect that readers are getting a bit exhausted by the exhaustiveness of biography because there is a lot of fabulous, wonderful detail that you can put in, but do you want to? And do people want to read that much? Maybe they do, and maybe selling myself short here, having having sort of walked that road myself. But I, I gave myself the freedom with the Wendy book here to not present that exhaustiveness by not calling it a biography. It allows me the uh, gives me the excuse too of of not having to tick to to cover every part of her life in you know I guess ex- exhausted detail and. It gives you a certain freedom to 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 linger over moments that matter at the time of telling and also to sort of cast back at, at the same time. And so what I was trying to do here was, yes, to tell a story of her life, and that's a biographical thing. But unlike Brett, of course, my subject was very much alive. And so anyone who knows Wendy or anyone who's seen her in public would know that she has a presence and a particular way of telling a story in it. Particular energy and charm, and I wanted to somehow capture what it's like to sit with her and just to listen to her talk about herself and talk about the world. And so, what I wanted to do here was just to bring those two things together: a a biographical treatment with a, a, you know, a personal portrait. And because there's really nothing else than sitting at her table and listening to her whole chord, which I've done over many years. At various times, and it's, it's always fascinating. And not everyone has that experience, of course. And and so, stepping into this, I, I put it to her at a quiet, probably vulnerable moment during COVID, when everyone was a little bit down and open to suggestion. I guess that maybe it's time to to revisit the question of a life story for her. And again, she said, "Well, people really care about this stuff," and I assured her that she, um, there would there would be interest. And so then. There it was. We just decided to sit every week with a rough idea of a theme each time, even though the nature of a conversation like this, particularly with Wendy, I think, is that it goes where it goes. And I might come with a particular sort of plan for the conversation that would rarely end up where I wanted it to, but for the better as well. And so, But the thing is that our, our frame was always Lavender Bay. We were sitting at a house. We were sitting at a table. And it's at that table where she does everything. And I remember...
1: Was this lockdown 2020 or the big one the following year in Sydney?
0: A bit of both, but began in 2020. And I found her at the right time, basically, I, as in I was talking to her at the right time when she was open to the to the idea and she was reflective. Everyone was that like, you're in your house, you've got time to think. And she doesn't necessarily need that encouragement she spent a lot of time in therapy and she she knows how to mine herself for uh, you know for insights but that I mean the house itself and I remember when I first went there years and years ago it's kind of it's stunning like the way it's presented it's it's like a living museum at times my, my little kid when I've taken him around he he treats it like that almost like wandering around the bedroom and everything looking at the objects and going through drawers but it's so that there, there's a kind of visual splendor to it. But even more than that, you recognise things from Brett's paintings. You know that scene. You know the history of the house through art, and it's kind of almost unsettling to walk into it. And it it took me years to feel comfortable, and I think now I feel a little a, a little more so. And but this, it's still early days. But that that table though is a convenient little segue. You you wanted me to read something. This is a little bit. It's a zinc table, by the way. She found it. She found it discarded by the side of the road. It was. She had to put it back together and a, found a zinc person to make it all fancier. But it's basically the the um, fulcrum of the house, and this is where it goes. So I'll begin now. The business of being Wendy Whiteley takes place at this table. This is where she sits to have conversations with collectors and gallery executives dealers and admirers, artists, reporters, businessmen, auctioneers, filmmakers, lawyers, friends, and all the others who come for a moment of a time. This is the table where Wendy takes most of her meetings and sits to eat most of her meals. This is the table where visitors join her for a cup of tea. If it's just her at home, there will be papers spread across across its surface, roughly categorised, emails printed out alongside catalogues, brochures, magazines, newspaper clippings, documents to sign, her address book can usually be found in there somewhere, small and black, hundreds of names and numbers and cryptic inscriptions written by hand inside. There are also invitations to events, exhibition openings, dinners, cocktail parties, fundraisers, but their volume has slowed recently, one consequence of the coronavirus pandemic. The Wendy isn't complaining about that. These have been indoor days. There was a time not so long ago when she could be spotted out in the garden every day tending to her creation, forever finding a piece of nature that needed refinement or care. But those pieces of nature require less of her than they once did. There's also a practical reason for her absence, in addition to the pandemic that forces all of us to shelter inside. She hasn't been out in the garden much lately because her body is no longer as forgiving of her spending long hours crouched in the dirt. If works of art are never finished but abandoned, then Wendy's garden, no longer a secret, is entering a new stage of existence, one that belongs as much to the people who step through its paths as to the gardeners who tend to its leaves and to the woman whose creativity, obsessiveness and indifference to authority brought it all to life.
1: Fabulous. The scene scene is set. There's a very big part of me that envies you, first of all, being able to leave your home (laughs) during (laughs) lockdown but also to be, have been able to spend times like that without distraction, as you say, without the distractions and, and with Wendy in that beautiful environment.
0: Yeah, and that was a nice thing. That we, we just had time to sit.
1: Are you not- friends?
0: Are we what, sorry? Are you friends? Of course, yes. And I, I think it's, it's almost dependent upon a friendship to be able to do something like this because there's a shorthand that, that you develop over the years and there's an understanding. And I think more than anything, there's a trust on her part that that I was was going to create the right sort of environment here in, in a narrative sense that would work for her and and for her legacy. And like because she's, I mean, how do I put this? So she as, as I I mentioned that there have been a number of people who have kind of circled around her story. And she let me into the Brett world, which was no small thing. She'd stopped a lot of people previously. But Letting me into her own was a, another level of intrusion, I guess, as well. And she she was, there was that implicit trust that you get from spending time with a friend. And and I, I, I quite admire that and value that. And, and this wouldn't have happened without that as well. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together.
1: She met Brett when she was quite young uh, through art school and very quickly he needed her companionship uh, quite desperately at times. That's what I feel reading your book. Uh, Why do you think that was?
0: There's a distinct sense of insecurity on his part early on and later as well when she is not by his, his side. He goes over to Europe as a teenager uh, when he won an Italian art scholarship and she was supposed to join him soon and she took her time because she was doing two jobs in order to save money for the ticket. But he was over there in Italy getting all anxious and worked up about her absence. Why is she not returning my call? Why is she not writing to me? And you see those letters and they're really kind of over the top and a bit needy. And it happens again um, later when they're together. Wendy goes to to New York for a little while with Brett's mother and leaving Brett in London. Um, Where he we had a, you know, a very, a very busy emerging career, and she wasn't rushing back, and again he got quite worked up about that fact. He he obviously really needed her and wanted her by his side, and there, there's a there's a suggestion there, there's a sense of possessiveness, I guess, and you know even even control maybe that that comes with that, and you know I, I might leave that for others to sort of to determine, but. I, I, the, I think Wendy's, Wendy's made it very clear over the years and her, 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 her story hasn't changed Here, She was an, an artist as a teenager. She did go to art school, but after she met Brett, she wasn't working as an artist anymore, at least as a painter uh, in the traditional sense. Uh, you could make the, the point that her, her whole life is, to some extent, a series of art. Um, oh, creation. Of, of creation yeah. Look at the beautiful garden. Um, yeah, and so her, her life is a life of creativity but she she gave up painting but the message on that has been utterly consistent, that she hasn't given up anything. Um, she, she didn't feel like it was really a choice either way. There wasn't a lot of room in that marriage for the two artists to be working side by side.
1: Your book is beautifully constructed, Ashley, from the present time, the conversations with you and Wendy and the reader feels very much like they're pulled up the third chair at the table and a part of that. I love that. But the other thing too is you follow the story of Wendy Whiteley through a chronological order. And of course, there's there are many fabulous and amazing moments living overseas. And Brett, of course, wowing the international art world. There are lots of holidays. There are lots of big characters. One's known, one's lesser known. And we'll leave the reader to explore that massive and incredible life that Wendy's had. But Toward the end of their marriage, I, f- I just kept feeling like there was this third person in their relationship, which was drugs. And I still can't quite understand how Wendy could give up, or what prompted her. What was the fuel, the energy behind her giving up, and why Brett could not?
0: I think that's a, a good observation that, that the third presence in the in the marriage, and it was it was a, a effect Of course, the, there are various other complications, and and you can never truly know the ins and outs of another person's marriage ultimately it was brett's inability to get clean that to him as a as a partnership and brett tried wendy tried they tried together they failed together but eventually what was,
1: car- what was the character difference though why could one and not the other do you think
0: well on on brett's side i i've i've spoken to a number of people including wendy but a number of people uh, who spent time with him in recovery and who who Knew him, I guess, in a in a drug context, and he did struggle a little bit with the concept of a higher power, which in AA and NA can can have a religious con- um, connotation, but doesn't necessarily have to. It's about surrender, and he did he did struggle with that concept, and he didn't fully, he d- never really submitted himself to that to that surrender. And there's the other thing to consider, which is the effect of drugs on his creativity and that's it can be wildly overblown um the idea that you need drugs to to create an artist and as when he put po- uh, to create art and as when he points out brett was a ex- successful artist long before he was a heroin addict there is no correlation between the two i'm not talking about his what he created i'm talking about what he thought he was creating and what he thought he could create without drugs
1: and then, and I guess that gets gets to the heart of what maybe an insecurity of Brits. Did he wonder? Do you think? Did he wonder? Can I create great art?
0: Well, that's the thing. And if you think about the, the 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 paintings, the big paintings that are worth millions these days, and the best known, the Lavender Bay ones, when they were created in the mid seventies, most of them, he was winning the Archibald Prize. He won it twice in the mid to late seventies. That was also when he was starting on heroin. So the fear creeps in that if I remove one from my world, what happens to the other? One thing from my world, what happens to the other thing? And I, I want to make very clear that I don't think there's a correlation between his 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 talent and the drugs. That that would be the wrong message to take. But there was definitely that fear on on his part about the effects. But we're talking about Wendy though, and she she failed. They 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 went into re- recovery together, and that's not a good thing to do usually. And they failed, but then eventually she pushed through and got clean. And that was basically what was the final split, more or less, between them. And But in the subsequent years, like when, when you just stop drugs almost overnight, and, and alcohol too, there were big drinkers. Many years later, she, went to, like she was a big smoker. And many years later, when I knew her, she just went to hospital for an unrelated procedure looked down at all the people smoking on the footpath and thought this is this is done what am I doing and stopped you know after 60 years or something of smoking uh, she kind of did the same with coffee there's a there's an inner strength there that that she has that's undisputable that has um, allowed her to to do these things and there's not been a moment of wobbliness about drugs alcohol cigarettes whatever ever since it just a uh, switch was 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 activated and, and there, there you go. And she couldn't have got into her 80s otherwise.
1: The death of Brett, of course, was a little complicated. Brett had a partner, Janice, at the time. There was an awful lot of artwork, of course, to be discussed and fought over. And their much-loved only child, Aki, who herself a celebrated creative, a uh, uh, an actress primarily known as, but much loved by so many people, was pretty much the sole inheritor. There was also Brett's mother, Beryl, who was still alive. It was complicated, the women in Brett Whiteley's life. Not an original idea for a story, I might say. A lot of people have talked about that over the years. But in your discussions with Wendy, what did you learn about that moment and that time? And the division of the assets, the division of the paintings, and who had the power, who owned the Brett Whiteley legacy.
0: Yeah, it was a messy time, and it was also a tragic time. We were dealing with death and of a former husband and her, and their daughter, and then very very public raking over of of legacies and settlements and and, and legal questions. And they, these can be hard things to to kind of work through. And uh, I mean the way that. The whole picture has settled. It's interesting because, the, as you said, the 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 Whiteley the ownership of the of of, of the Whiteley estate more or less fell to Aki after his death, and then subsequently after hers um, went to Wendy. And whatever people may have thought about that at the time, and I'm sure there was some some whispering and at the, at the time about these sorts of things. There has been no one who could have carried. That estate and that legacy and that like like Wendy has. And have no one who could have protected it and and carried it forward and promoted it and really given it the life it needed to sort of thrive, like Wendy. And her contribution to his posthumous career, I suppose, and to his legacy has been incredible. And obviously he brings up into that, of course, himself. But she is an incredible thing in. Um, these last two decades in overseeing all the various aspects of that of, of that creative legacy and a big part of recent years has been in looking at finding a way to avoid another whitely will mess she doesn't want to go and leave another dispute like that there's been too many it's too much crap and so in recent times her her ambition has been to arrange things in a way that when she's no longer here, the Whiteley studio, the garden, the house, all the paintings, all the everything to do with the estate are in good hands for the future. And I think she's done that and achieved that very well.
1: So she has like a council of trustees, does she?
0: Uh, there, there are various uh, experts on for each of those each of those elements. So the the Whiteley Studio has a well it's owned by the art gallery now and administered by them. Um, and they have a they have a board, and the garden has various people who take care of it. Like her, her role through a lot of these places is, I, I guess, like a emeritus chairman or something. Like she, she kind of floats above them and 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 weighs in when needed. But there are there's an increasing amount of trust in those people that she's put in place um, who can manage these things in her absence and don't need her to to get into the weeds as much as she did. And literally in the case
1: of the garden. It's an incredible, incredible gift that she's given the people of Australia, isn't
0: it? That garden, yeah. Um, and for... oh,
1: but the garden, but also when she's no longer with us, this very careful plotting of what will go where and ultimately the people of New South Wales, the people of Australia are the beneficiaries of this generosity.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, from the Whiteley estate point of view, I think her donation to the art gallery and the Whiteley Studio is in the many, many, many millions of dollars. I think it's hundred million or something, which, which is alone in itself an, an amazing gesture. And it's her gift to the art gallery is is under the name of Wendy Anarchy Whiteley, very deliberately, of course. But I think her the gift to Sydney of that garden is really something else because. Not only is she put in twenty something years of her time, 20, or thirty years of her time, and a few million dollars of her own money in upkeep. She's she started off and just got in there and turned this kind of unruly rubble of waste on the side of Sydney Harbour into what is now, without doubt, one of the great outdoor spaces in this country. And it kind of sometimes reminds me of those bit, those parts in in Tokyo where. You could be walking through a a forest of high-rises and then turn the corner and suddenly you're in the middle of a kind of bounteous amount of green. And it feels like that at Lavender Bay with her garden because it's, for those who don't know know Sydney, it's right on the edge of Sydney Harbour overlooking Luna Park, facing the Opera House, facing the Harbour Bridge, and yet you can kind of walk inside it and get lost in the the little sort of valleys of of green that she's arranged all through the space.
1: And was it her land? Was it their land originally?
0: No, it's it is the thing. It's rail rail land. And it, it was on the front of her house. Like it's immediately in front of the house that she that she lives in. But she never owned it. Still doesn't. She just got that down there one day, kind of still flush with the emotions following Brett's death. And kind of just wanted to do something to 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 keep herself busy. And the, there's something about the exhausting herself physically every day as well that allowed her um, that was really attractive and so she just got down there she didn't ask permission probably because she knew that if she did she'd be refused and but this the rail department wasn't using it they just kind of abandoned it so she got in got in there cleaned it up and before long they could see what was happening and kind of a magical place was emerging and it's kind of one of the more incredible things that this act of Guerrilla gardening is has since been recognised by the authorities in the way that it has. So it's it's taken some time for the New South Wales government to come on board, but they have in the last couple of years to, in in a way that that means that it, it it's got some long term security and it's not going to be turned into high rises basically.
1: We're all pretty lucky, actually, that Wendy Whiteley has been so formidable, so strong. You mentioned her strength earlier and her fortitude, and I think not only protecting the legacy of her former husband, but also protecting this natural space, is remarkable. She's. Do you think she's still in love with Brett?
0: No. Oh well, I don't know. I, I think there's a deep respect there, but
1: but there's answer. no anger. There's no anger anymore. No.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, that's an easy one to answer. The the bitterness and the the anger that was there when he died was all around the details of their split, more or less, how to divide the settlement between them and how to work out who gets what and of course when you when you have money and you're working out who's not who's going to get what, it can get a little acrimonious, and it did. but those arguments aren't being had anymore, and if if he'd survived, those arguments wouldn't have been had anymore i doubt they would have got back together probably but they they are equally an important part of each other's lives uh, he's he is a, he was an important part of a section of her life but he's been gone now 30 years or so and it's it's it's, it's interesting when you go down to the garden for instance and all the, the admirers that come up to wendy they know her name they don't necessarily know his
1: that isn't that That's wonderful. That's hard. the way it should be. She, she can't define herself by the being the wife of or the former wife of.
0: Well, I was she can't, kind of, but the government occasionally can. Uh, one little thing to point out here is that recently the New South Wales government, the heritage people have decided to put up blue plaques on notable houses around town like they do in London. And one of the first they put on her house in Lavender Bay, the Whiteley House. But whose name is it? Brett Whiteley's only.
1: Well, we might have to lobby to to change that.
0: I think someone has to. Maybe a maybe someone's just gonna can go down and and replace it or write it write on it or something. Imagine <laughs> market, but obviously that's inadequate, and everyone's a little surprised that they have made that decision.
1: Ashley, it's a terrific book. I love the way you've uh, you've structured it. I love the weaving back and forth. As I said earlier, the chapter headings are great. At the very beginning, I feel like we're embarking on a a piece of long form journalism, a, you know, a portrait, but then it, of a person. But then it just becomes so much more, and it's also actually really insightful for those of us who love art, the 20th century experience of the art, the Australian artist, that that need, that determination to go internationally to kind of seek whatever was happening there, but then ultimately finding that home base is pretty terrific and inspiring in itself. Before we say goodbye, of course, it's the big question that we always ask our visitors to the book pod. If you were on a desert island or indeed sitting in that garden uh, with no access to books, but one or one author, what would you or who would you choose?
0: So I don't want you to roll your eyes on this one in my choice. I've, I've thought about it. There are probably various other authors and books that speak more profoundly to me. But if I was to be locked away for the rest of my days with a with one text only, I don't think I could go past Ulysses. I read it when I was a lot younger and I'm currently lucky enough to be part of a, a, a Joyce reading group when we can each each month we get together and we, we read aloud a certain section and talk about it. It's quite fun. What a what an and, interesting idea! Yeah, and I, it's I, I, there's a nice eclectic group of people. It's it's kind of unofficially run by the esteemed Gabriel Carey and a whole whole bunch of other very erudite readers and me. And I, I'm <laughs> it's taken me some time to get the confidence to say I have no idea what you're talking about uh, because that happens a lot. But the um, obviously Ulysses is a, is a Whopper of a book and 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 an intellectual challenge of no end. And Joyce talked about mainly about *Finnegans Wake*, but he talked about keeping keeping um, readers busy for a century. And I think you can spend endless time with that book and still dis- discover new meanings and 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 revelations. And I, I, I think it would lend itself very well to endless months going over individual paragraphs and working out what the hell is talking about. I'd like to say Finnegan's Wake for the, for the Desert Island book, but it's, it's just such a difficult book, and I don't speak 60, 70 languages that occasionally is required to read that book. So Ulysses, at least in comparison, feels a little bit more approachable.
1: Well, you're talking to someone who did Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in Year 12 English Literature and didn't do so well on the marks on that one. So um, I'm in awe of you, Ashley Wilson, and I'm in awe of you because not only of these two great books that you've created about the Whiteley family, but your innate understanding of the Australian art scene and what it really means to be a creative person. And it is a beautiful book, A Year with Wendy Whitley by Ashley Wilson, published by our friends at Chex Publishing, and we wish it well. We hope it pops up in 2023 and lots of short and long list award lists. And it's a great book, Ashley. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been great to chat. Thanks for joining us.